If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, one of our ushers would be glad to get you one. We do project the verses on the screen to serve you, but I don't think that compares with having a Bible in your hands and looking down at the, the words and learning to love this book that God has given us. We'll be in John chapter 3 this morning. We're continuing our Advent series, and uh, we're taking time for Advent to prepare for the wonder of Christmas, and we're using the uh, traditional focus of the Advent wreath. Uh, Do you guys know, I don't know, maybe you know this, the Advent wreath was, as we know it today, was introduced in the 1800s by a missionary an urban missionary in Germany. He was working in Hamburg among the poor. And in a desire to help the children patiently and uh, and Godwardly wait for Christmas, he designed the Advent wreath, the the kind of the modern Advent wreath. Uh, And he did that with each candle representing a different theme of truth, of Christianity, of our faith. And so each week uh, a new candle was lit and a different theme was highlighted. And so, actually, uh, Phil Lowther has designed this series and has served me and served us so well in doing this. Uh, and each candle uh, is a theme. So the first one uh, Phil talked about last week, it's actually this candle uh, on hope. And then this week we're going to talk about love. And then, I never knew this till Phil enlightened me, the pink candle, I always grew up, the pink candle was the fourth week. Actually, it's supposed to be the third week because it's the week of joy and pink representing joy. Uh, so you've got to go home after this and correct your Advent wreath if you don't have it right. Uh, so we'll do joy and then the last piece and then, of course, the center candle for Christmas and Christ himself. Uh, and so last week, Phil talked to us about hope. And in that message, he looked at the life of Simeon and Anna and the importance of hope that as we trust in his word, as we believe him for his salvation, as we're filled with his Holy Spirit, we live in hope. It's such an important thing. And so thank you, brother, for serving us with that great message and those wonderful truths last week. This week we are going to focus on love. So we'll be looking at the truth in Scripture of God's love. We'll be reading from John chapter 3. And in particular, we'll just be honing in on verses 16 through 18. Uh, It's a wonderful passage. I'm sure we're we're familiar with it. There's lots of truth in the entire passage. I've actually preached once or twice on the whole section, and I think that should be available on the website if you'd like to know the whole background. But we're going to narrow in on the focus uh, of verses 16 and 18 that are given as ultimately God's answer, uh, John's probably Jesus' answer as well, for the why of why was Christ provided. So we're going to look at this. But as we prepare to learn about God's love today, as we prepare to listen to him and his very words from Scripture, let's pray and ask him to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for the wonder of your love. We thank you for your wonderful word, your living word. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you delight You delight to take the things from the Father and the Son and make them known to us. That you delight to take the Word and bring the truth of the Word to our hearts and bring change in our lives. 
and to shape us and form us into your image and to use us in your purposes. Lord, it's a, a holy privilege to be before your word. And we ask you to come and speak and work. Lord, how we need you. Lord, how we love you and we're learning to love you and to love your truth and your kingdom. So we ask you to do all this. Lord, I, Lord you know each one here. You know what's going on in their lives. I pray, Lord, through your word, by the power of the Spirit, you would speak to each one and you would speak to us as a group as well and lead us in this wonderful truth of your amazing love, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Verses 16 through 18, as John provides the explanation for the provision of the Son that Jesus has been talking to Nicodemus about, says, In chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. In particular, we're going to be looking at verses, verse 16 and the statement, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is probably the most famous verse in the Bible, uh, I think. It's the one we see at football games, John 3.16. And I had someone ask me once, what in the world does John 3.16 have to do with football? And, uh, and uh, well, I could give an answer. It would be a lengthy one. But, I, but the, the, the real thing it has to do with is that guy with the crazy rainbow hair wants everybody to know the truth of John 3.16, this important verse. Uh, this verse is perhaps a bit overworn and perhaps a bit undervalued because of that. Nothing wrong with the verse in and of itself. It's an amazing verse. It's an amazing truth here. But we're used to it. We're used to hearing this verse. We're used to even hearing this truth that God so loved the world. We're actually really used to hearing that we're loved, aren't we? It's something kind of in our modern culture we hear all the time. Uh, And I'm not trying to say it's wrong, but we hear it all the time, don't we? Mr. Rogers loves us. Barney loves us, Oprah loves us, uh, Ellen loves us, the people on American Idol love us, everybody loves us. And we're used to that. So sometimes we come to John 3.16, and, and I think everyone in our society to some degree feels this way. It's like, well, of course God loves the world. Of course God loves me. If Barney loves me, God must love me. And the problem in that is that we lose Just the wonder, just the wonder that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we must learn to distinguish God's love from the love we hear about. Nothing wrong with those other things, but it can kind of keep us from distinguishing love. I, I read this week about a child who was rescued in that horrible earthquake in 2008 in China. And they came uh, to the rubble and they found, uh, the dog sniffed someone out, I guess, and they started to dig and they found a mom who was no longer alive, but she was in a crouched position on all fours, hunched over 
and, and had been killed by the rubble, but somehow in the way that she held herself, she was able to protect her baby underneath her. So they came, the baby was still alive there underneath her. And they found a cell phone with her, and uh, on the cell phone was a text message uh, that said, My darling baby, if you survive, please remember I love you. Wonderful story. But perhaps if that child grew up in America hearing about being loved in all these different contexts, it might be hard for that child to really understand just the profound love of his mother for him versus what Barney or others might say. I think we're a lot like that ourselves. When John 3.16 is given, we can just kind of put it in the same category of these other statements, as meaningful as they might be, because there are meaningful statements of love as well from family members and friends. But it is so important for us to distinguish, distinguish the amazing love of God from these other loves. It is so important for us to see just how profound it is and for us at Advent to recognize that the most precious gift we have is the love of God. And we are called to treasure this precious gift. We are called to treasure and to recognize that this love of God is not like any other love. It is an infinite love. It is a redeeming love. And because of the nature of God's love, it's an inviting love to us as well. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the love of God. I want to talk about from John, uh, both the Gospel of John and First John and some, a few other places in Scripture. I want to talk about the love of God, the profound, amazing love of God. And I want to talk about it in a way, uh, trusting God by His Word, by the Holy Spirit, that we might come away from this treasuring, treasuring this most precious gift above all other things. So let's talk about it. Let's first talk about the fact that it is infinite love. Infinite love in, in, in word. The word infinite can be perhaps overused as well, and I don't want to overuse it, but there are a few places that are worthy of the term infinite. And when we talk about the love of God, infinite is a worthy adjective, for it is an infinite love. Paul prays in, in Ephesians for the, his friends, the Ephesians, that they may have strength. He prays that they might have strength. He prays for the ability. He prays for the faith. He prays for them because he knows they need need it. He, He knows that we are finite. He prays that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To comprehend the incomprehensible. To to grasp the infinite that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Amazing, amazing prayer request to be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul recognizes that the infinite fullness of God is available as we grasp the infinite love of God. John 3.16 says it this way, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. The the writer uh, uses the word, John uses the word so love the world. We use that word too, don't we? We use the word so when we want to say something's really big. If we say something was so much fun, we mean it was a lot of fun, and we expect someone to describe how it was fun. If I say the Grand Canyon is so large, 
you expect me to start to describe the, the size of the Grand Canyon. Actually, it's 277 miles long, 20 miles wide, over a mile deep. And likewise, here in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, meaning the dimension is great. And how is the dimension defined? The dimension is defined by what he did. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. So the secret to understanding the infinite dimension of the love of God is to understand the worth of the son. To understand that God gave something infinitely precious, infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious for us. That's how we know how much he loved the world. How much he loved broken, sinful humanity. That's what it means by the world there. So we learn how much he loved, loved and loves the world by what he gave. And I think we have to probe a little bit what uh, we have to probe the son. And I think in particular we need to probe the relationship between the son and the father. To understand that relationship, to understand its glory, to understand it, it, its preciousness. And then as we probe that, I think we begin to understand what it means to be given the Son for our rescue. We start to understand how this is infinite love. So let's take a little bit of time to look at some verses in John. And you can look elsewhere too. Let's just look at John. And John perhaps in a, in a unique way, not, not unique, but a special, more pronounced way, highlights the relationship between the Father and the Son. There are wonderful statements throughout the book. John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. Wonderful section of Scripture. And he says, Father, I desire that they also, speaking of uh, us, the disciples who would come from the disciples, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory, that you, and listen to this statement, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus has been, been given this glory. He, has, he is glorious in and of himself, and he has been given glory, particularly through his life and death, his person and work. He's been given glory, and he wants them to see his glory that, that he, the Father has given because the Father Love the Son before the foundation of the world. That means before time, before anything had happened, there had been this relationship, this, this love of the Father for the Son that was unmatched, that was eternal, that was infinite because God himself is infinite. And Jesus is praying that we might see that glory that flows from that love, Father to the Son. Elsewhere, John 5.20, Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Jesus says in that verse that the Father loves me and shows me what he's doing, and I do nothing on my own. I only do what I see my Father doing. Jesus' ministry on the earth was a ministry of response, of love to his Father, love received from his Father. That's how he lived. That's what he did. His ministry was based on that. He only did what he saw the Father doing. That is consistent with their relationship from eternity past, that he would come to earth and he would continue that. Later on, In John 14, as his death on the cross draws near, he says, I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. I do what 
It's commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Why did Jesus obey to the point of death on the cross? The number one reason is he loved the Father. When he was in Gethsemane and he was facing the brutality of death on the cross, not only physically but the spiritual uh, immense penalty that he would would be paying in his death on the cross, as he faced that, he wrestled with it and he submitted to it and he said, never... The less not my will be done, but your will be done. His interaction in the Garden of Gethsemane, his wrestling was not over whether he would win the lost or not. That's important. That's part of this equation. It fits in. But his primary wrestling was, will I do the will of my Father? Is my Father first in my life? Is my Father more important to me than my very life, than my peace? Is he more important to me than this suffering that I'm going to face? And so it was his love for the Father that drove him to the cross, primarily, in that his love for his people. But his love for the Father. We see that relationship in Gethsemane. We, if you back up to you see it in the baptism in the Jordan. He comes up and the Father says what? This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. Yes, it is important for us to recognize his love for us, God's love for us, Christ's love for us. That is important. But if we neglect the context of the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father, it diminishes the meaning that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. The Father supremely valued the Son. And the Son supremely valued the Father. And you and I are byproducts of that great love. Significant byproducts, but byproducts of that great eternal love between Father and Son. For it is in that love that we are swept up. Uh, I think analogies, a couple of analogies that maybe help. Think of in a healthy family, a father and a mother, a husband and a wife are to love each other deeply intimately. And from that love comes children. And children find their security, they find their love in their parents' love. That's how it should work. If a family is centered around the parents' love for the child, it's not a biblical family. A child finds their place, love, beloved of the parents, but in the context of the parents' love one for another. That's how it is with the father and the son, their love for one another. Even the Trinitarian love that existed from eternity is the context of where we understand the love of God for us. I I think of another uh, illustration perhaps that that may help. Um, Anyone here know what a Stradivarius is? A violin? Yes, a violin made by a guy named Antonio Stradivari. And uh, one recently was sold for how much? Anyone know? $3.6 $3.6 million just recently uh, bought by a uh, violinist uh, and for $3.6 million. These are uh, fascinating, wonderful violins. I'm not a violinist, uh, but they're, they have beautiful tones. They are highly valued. Made back in the 1600s, the late 1600s by Antonio Stradivari. Has anyone heard of a Guarneri violin? Anyone, anyone who's a violinist? Okay, Guarnieri violins are just as expensive, just as treasured. We just don't hear about them as much. Uh, one was sold a couple of years ago for the same, for three point almost six million, as well. The difference, I guess, between the Stradivari and the Guarnieri is that 
Uh, the Guarneris were made by multiple generations. There was the father, uh, Andrea, and then his son, Giuseppe, and then Bartolomeo and Pietro, their grandsons. So it was passed on. And, and I just think about what it might have been like to have been in that workshop. I don't know if all three worked together, all three generations were together, but what it would have been like to be in that workshop as Andrea worked on violins with his son Giuseppe and Bartolomeo and Pietro, the grandsons, just to be there as these masters made these violins. And I, and I would imagine that as they did that, given that it went three generations, that there was love between the father and the son that the father had learned this craft. He had learned it from someone else. He had learned how to make these wonderful violins. And actually, the son's violins are, I think, the most prized of the three generations. And the father just loved working with his son and teaching him and them sharing together the glory of how to do great violins. And can you imagine uh, that that's the context, that there's these, these masters of making violins, father, son, and grandsons, and you, for some reason, are given an apprenticeship to work with them. You're given an apprenticeship to work with the Garnieris, to make violins, to be there, to be at the shop. How would you approach that apprenticeship? Would you show up on the first day saying, hey, guys, uh, I think we need to rearrange the shop here. Uh, you know, there, there's just some lack of efficiency here. And, I'm, you know, I, I'm so glad that, that you've called me in to be part of what's going on. I think I can really make a difference uh, in what's going on in this operation. So, so let's get going. No, you wouldn't do that. You would walk into the shop, I think, I think I would, and just say, if I can just be a fly on the wall here and not say boo and do anything you want me to do, just to be around you guys and watch is amazing. Just, just, just to be part of it. Just to have the privilege of being called into this partnership of this family is amazing. Our eyes would be on the relationship and just learning and enjoying that. That's what the love of God for us is like. The love of the Father and the Son goes from eternity past to eternity future. It's glorious. And then for an amazing reason that, that we'll talk about, God has brought us into this relationship. We are like the apprentice brought into the shop. And he loves us. It's, it's amazing love that he would do that. But the, the, the love of God for us finds its context in the eternal love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. And in there, there is meaning. There's depth to that love. There's significance to that love. It's not Barney love. It is glorious, infinite love into which we are invited and welcomed in Christ. It's, it's amazing it's amazing that, that it includes this. Jesus says more in John 17 about it, and, it, and these verses are worthy of meditation and years of meditation. And in uh, verse 22 in chapter 17, before he talks about what we read previously, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, and you and me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, and love them even as you loved me, and love them even as you love me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that the glory that Jesus has, the glory that has been given to him by the Father, 
has been given to us. The love that he receives from the Father, he says that you sent me and love them how? Even as you love me. Guys, that's amazing. That's holy. We don't treat that like any pedestrian love. It's amazing. It's unfathomable. It's even perplexing. That we get invited into the violin shop, so to speak, and then he turns to us and says, I love you just like I love my son. And the glory that I give my son, he has given to you. This glory is the glory of the person and work of Christ. The glory that he has won. And, and, and that is another topic we could spend a lot of time on. Uh, the glory of Christ is really incomprehensible. Uh, Cautions teaches us that through him all things were made, things in heaven and on earth, whether unseen, whether seen or unseen, all things were made through him. He created all things. So the most glorious things in creation were made through the sun. So things like, you know, pounding waves, glorious storms, starlit nights, all the glory of this earth, which is really amazing, were made through the sun. He made the stuff that we see as glorious, rightly so. But he's more glorious than that. He's more glorious than that. He, he is the image of the invisible God. He, he is God himself made known. He is the ultimate revelation of the glory of God. God wanted to show his glory. He made things. But he wanted to ultimately show his glory. He made himself known through his eternal son. So the glory of the son is the pinnacle of the expression of God. It is the very glory of God. It is not merely, he is not merely an expression of the glory of God. He is the glory of God. Jesus Christ is the glory of God in all its infinite dimensions. He is the glory of God. And we see that most profoundly in his death for sinners on the cross, in his resurrection, and then the following reign and return. That glory, that eternal glory, which is beyond comprehension, is of the Son, and He gives it to us. He gives His glory to us. It is our glory. We own it in Christ. We belong to Christ. And this eternal glory, this wonderful glory that we'll never comprehend, is ours. His death is for our sins. His resurrection is our life. His victories are our victories. His love is our love. That's amazing. And we'll spend eternity probing that. And it won't ever get boring. And we'll recognize it has no comparison to any other love. And we'll glory in that. And it is just so profound, so unspeakable, so perplexing, such an amazing privilege to be loved on the same level as the Father and the Son love each other. It should change our lives forever. We must treasure this most precious gift of the love of God because it is infinite love. We are to treasure it also because it is redeeming love. It is redeeming love. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that He gave His Son. He so loved the world. He loved the world with this infinite love. He loved His people with this infinite love that He gave His Son. 
that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God has loved us with this infinite love that is a redeeming love. Redemption. Redemption is when something is rescued and made useful. It's, re- it's changed. It's made useful. It's one. Uh, it's used in, in Scripture uh, in a word that's similar for when a slave was redeemed. Their price was paid. They're one, they're, they're one back to, the, uh, to freedom or to their original master or, or friends. We use the word redemption probably just with soda cans and things like that, right? Redemption, you've seen on the cans or the bottles, redemption, five cents on all these states, ten cents what, in California, I think, somewhere it's ten cents. We should move there and get rich. Um, so we, take, we use the word redemption for an old soda can that's maybe crushed and lying by the side of the road, and we go and we pick that can up and we bring it in to the supermarket or somewhere, I haven't done this in a while, and we get five cents for it. So something that is just really litter and, and, and ruined is rescued and redeemed and made valuable. And God's love does that in our lives. His love is a redeeming love. He comes to rescue us. He comes to rescue us from our state that we might not perish but have eternal life. Scripture is full of explaining the nature of His love. And the nature of His love is very tightly tied to the fact that it's redeeming love. John, 1 John 4.10, it says, And this is love. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love. Not that we love God, but He loved us. And how is it shown? He sent His Son for what? To be the propitiation for our sins. We'll talk about that in a minute. John 3 says that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The purpose of His love, the goal of giving His Son, the the motive, the end of His love, was that we should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is is John's word for eternal life, for the kingdom, for our uh, relationship with the Lord that is eternal. That we might have this relationship with God, that we might have eternal life. Our natural state before God is like that soda can. Broken, dirty, corrupted, crushed, and if left to itself, ultimately worthless. Now, I don't mean to say that we're worthless. We're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God, and we are priceless because of that. But, but apart from the Lord, we ultimately will be purposeless, worthless even, as that soda can. Perhaps nothing much better than litter left that. But God comes and redeems us in His great love. Paul says in Ephesians, as he talks about this reality of this soda can state that we're in, crushed and dirty, lying by the the road, he, he talks about that and he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God came along and picked up the dirty, broken soda can and made it alive and redeemed it in Christ by the blood of Christ to have an eternal inheritance in God, knowing Him, 
He sent His Son to be the means, the price, to pay for the soda can, to pay for us, to rescue us. John, first, first John 4 says He came to be the propitiation. God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that's not a word we use a lot. A propitiation is an offering to satisfy justice or holy wrath. It's an offering given to satisfy justice when there has been a deep offense that has broken relationship. It's an offering made to satisfy justice in that case, to bring reconciliation. And Christ is the propitiation. You see... We are all enemies of God in our natural state. We have chosen to be a soda can. We chose that, to be the soda can, because we thought this is a better life than than living under God. That's our natural state. It's it's crazy. It doesn't make sense, but sadly it's our natural state. We've chosen that. We've rebelled against God, whether, whether that's led to our lives being obviously broken and crushed to everyone around us, or if we're good at looking good on the outside, yet inside still being broken. Either way, We've chosen our own path, be it the path of open rebellion or quiet self-righteousness. And there's a penalty. The wage of sin is death. The worst part of death is not the physical death, it's the spiritual death. The wages of sin is death. It's a spiritual death. It's a breaking of our relationship with God. And it's, if left to itself, if we are left to ourselves, an eternal broken relationship with God. That's what hell is. It's being apart from God forever. There's nothing more horrible. And there's a penalty to be paid. We can either pay it ourselves or someone can pay it for us. But the someone who pays it must be worthy enough to pay the price. They can't have their own price to pay. They must be worthy enough to pay the price. And only Jesus is that one, our King, our Champion. He is worthy. And He is the propitiation for our sins. He came to do that because He loved the Father and He loves His people. He came to offer Himself to redeem the soda can and to give us a new life in Him. Forgiven, blessed, transformed by the Holy Spirit, knowing God, receiving the gift of faith, walking in faith, and then one day being with the Lord, being glorified, sin is done away with, then to be with the Lord forever, to share in the fullness of His glory forever and ever and ever. That's what He's done. That comes from His amazing love for us. He has propitiated our sins and made a way to redeem us. God's love is a redeeming love. And we as a church seek to build ourselves around this truth. It's really the Gospel, the good news of Christ. And it is so easy to allow the familiarity of this story to breed contempt. Not open contempt, but functional contempt. Where we just treat it as, yeah, okay, normal. Yeah, I know, Jesus died for me. And we can kind of end up categorizing it right along with the love of Barney. Barney loves me, Jesus died for me. Now, to say that sounds awful, and I, don't, I know none of us would want to say that, but functionally, that's where we go. And we don't stop to pause and wonder that God would send His Son to redeem us. Why would He do it? Why would He do it? Why would He send His Son? Isn't the Son worth more than a thousand 
million, a billion, even an infinite amount of sinners? As, as valuable as people are, and they are valuable, they're priceless. We're made in the image of God. We're priceless, but compared to the Son, how many of, it do, of us does it take to equal the life of the Son? Infinite amount. He is worthy. He has been glorious from eternity past. He is glorious in His life, death, and resurrection. He is glorious forever and ever. And, and, and all the people in the world do not even account for one little drop of blood of Christ spilled for us. It is not a balanced equation. And yet He came and He shed His blood freely for us. God, grant us grace never, ever to take that for granted. Give us illumination from your word by your spirit. God, I don't want to treat your love like the love of Barney or any other love. Help us, God, never to grow familiar with this love, with this price. that Christ would shed his blood for us is unfathomable. It's more precious than the whole universe put together and yet was shed freely for us. God is glorified in this. God is glorified in this. There's no love like God's love. And it is fundamental to his character. It is his glory that he would love like this, that the, the equation would be so unbalanced is from the heart of God. It's from the very nature of God. The anchor for that is not in us. It's in him. It's in the greatness of his love for us. Let us never balance the equation out and think, yeah, you know, a, a billion Christians is worth the life of Christ. No, never. Yes, a billion Christians are worth very, very much, but never could equal the life of Christ. Let us be in awe that God would send His Son to redeem sinners like us. Sinclair Ferguson says something amazing. He says, When we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the lengths to which God's love goes in order to win us back to Himself. We would almost think we would almost think that God loved us more than He loves His Son. We cannot measure His love by any other standard. He is saying to us, I love you this much. That's amazing. And this Christmas time, let us treasure that love. Let us ground ourselves in that love and know that there's nothing in us that motivated that love. It's from the glory of God. And that's the place where it's secure. We stand in His love. We stand in His love between Father and Son that we are welcomed into. It's unearned. It is our inheritance for every believer and the invitation for all non-believers. It always stands as an invitation. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. He has loved us. It is grounded in His character. John says in 1 John 4, this profound statement, God is love. God is love. I know this verse is abused. God is other things too, but indeed, God is love. John doesn't ground us in the fact that we are lovable. 
God just thought we were so great and it would be so exciting to have his throne room filled with all these people who loved him and we just share in this love. That's, that's significant. He does enjoy that. But that's not the ground of it. God wasn't lonely looking for some friends. God's life was not incomplete until you came to complete his life. God is perfect, eternal. And the reason for his redemption, the reason for his work is because he is love. That's the ground of it. It flows from Him. He is love. He is a God who loves others. He loves the Son. He loves His creation. And there's no other reason but His character. God is love. That's where John grounds it. And he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That is good news. That it's grounded in Him, not us. Because we can stand on that. We can rest in that. We can be secure in that because it doesn't change. So Paul can say in Romans 8, Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because he's grounded in the love of God because God is love. So let us treasure this gift of the love of God. Finally, and briefly, God's love is an inviting love. Our passage makes that clear. Verse 17, after this wonderful verse 16 is given, it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This verse is not merely a statement about the love of God. It's an invitation. It is consistent with the whole Gospel of John. John starts out in the beginning. The first paragraph of John is an introduction that's consistent throughout his gospel. And he says this in the beginning, but to all who did receive him, as he speaks about the Son, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. These statements about Christ, about his love, are an invitation to us. He invites us to believe and receive. And this love is for us. It's not for us apart from believing. It must be responded to. It must be received. It must be believed. And that's an invitation. The love of God is extended to all humanity, to any who would believe. It's an invitation to us to believe. And so if you're at that place right now where you have not yet believed, Hear the invitation to believe and to receive this infinite love for you. Receive it. Turn from lesser alternatives. Turn from sin and self. It makes no sense to live that way. Why exchange the glory of God in Christ for anything else? Leave all that stuff behind. Receive the love of God. We all must respond. This love of God, this truth of the gospel, is the ultimate plumb line, dividing line of humanity. And John says, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the the only Son of God. We are condemned in our sins already. 
The objective of sending Christ wasn't to condemn the world, but to rescue an already condemned world. That's the objective. And so it's an invitation to us. And if you are already a believer, it's an invitation to you too. The bank could come up as we finish up. It's an invitation to you as well. We are to receive His love today and tomorrow, and we're to enjoy it forever. We are never to stop being amazed by His love, comforted by His love, compelled by His love toward holiness and love for others. We're never to cease having His love shape us. This is why Paul in Ephesians 3 prays that they might know the love of God because he wants the church to be mature. He wants the church to be like Jesus. He wants the church to look like Jesus. Folks, your maturity as a believer, your maturity as a believer, your Christ-likeness individually and ours together corporately, both those things function in Scripture, your maturity, our maturity, depends on grasping and living in the love of God. Do you want to be mature in Christ? Know the love of God. Know its infinite dimension. Know its redeeming power. Know its invitation to you and to all others. It's so important to get that. And it's so important to realize that if you're trying to live your life, your Christian life, without the love of God, you're, you're trouble waiting to happen. You can even be dangerous. If you are trying to live your Christian life without complete confidence in the love of God for you in Christ, you are in danger because your motivations will be twisted and your fruit rotten because you'll be living your life apart from the only sound base of God Himself in His love. You'll be seeking to earn something instead of giving something away you've already received. You'll be fearful of the future. You'll be burdened by your sin, unsure of your gifts perhaps, weak in temptation, unclear in theology, unstable and even dangerous in ministry because ministry will become a means by which you feel better about yourself rather than a means by which you give away what you already have. Huge difference between the two. And we all must probe our own hearts about that. We must ground ourselves in the love of God. And as we do that, there's maturity. So what to do? Recognize the wrongness of a life lived not grounded on the love of God. Recognize the rightness of grounding ourselves on God and His love. Meditate on His love. Think about these truths. Look at Scripture. Pray and ask God to give you greater understanding. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and help you see and understand. Talk to others. Confess to others your doubts, your struggles. And none of us should ever be immune from needing to confess doubt and struggles because we all fall short of understanding this infinite love, don't we? So we confess. Would you pray for me? Would you help me? I recognize that I'm reacting and living this way because I'm not grounded in Christ and His love. Confess. Pray for one another. Get your eyes off yourself and put them on the Father and the Son and the love of God that we have in Him, this infinite, redeeming, inviting love. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask you to help us, to give us strength by the power of the Holy Spirit that Christ might fully dwell in us. He already does, Lord, for 
probably most of us, but Lord, we want more. We want strength. We want fellowship with You, Christ. We want power. We ask for power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God in Christ. To grasp this love that's beyond comprehension, that we might be filled to all the fullness of God. Lord, would You lead us and fill us individually and corporately and make us like Christ as we live in Your glorious love, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Mm.